This is hell. Boy, it makes you wonder when a segue from a gospel song works so well to the introduction of a show called This is Hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. And the great fortunes that are being made by corporations during the pandemic are definitely a crime. And it appears that crime will be followed by continuing interest rate hikes that will further benefit their bottom lines, all at the expense of, you guessed it, the rest of us, working people. In reality, the current and ongoing interest rate hikes are meant to protect the wealth of the already wealthy, to grow their fortunes off the backs of working people, as they always do. Inflation, in fact, is a part of the class war targeting workers while benefiting capital. There are solutions to fighting inflation that do not include raising interest rates, which will further destroy the lives of workers. However, they are not being considered despite the possibility and potential for such interest hikes leading for or to a recession. If not worse, in a few minutes, we will have the return of Hadastir, who will be on to discuss her new In These Times article, A Left Answer to Inflation. Hadass is an activist and author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist economics, and a regular contributor to Jacobin Magazine. And by the way, she does these uh, videos on YouTube. She hasn't put up a new one since, I don't know, over a year now, but they're called Marxism in a Minute, and you can find those on YouTube, and they're really fantastic. This is Hadass's third appearance on the show. Her most recent appearance was in March when we discussed her Dollars and Cents article, Cryptocurrency Will Not Liberate Us. She was also on the show the day after the 2020 presidential election to talk with us about her book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, because what better day to talk about Marxism than the day after a U.S. election? You can hear those interviews by searching on her last name, Tier, T-H-I-E-R, thisishell.com, and you can follow Hadas on Twitter, at Hadas Tier. Now... She was the last guest we had on the show before I had to be rushed in for emergency surgery, which if I had not had that surgery, well, there was a 50-50 chance I was actually going to survive that surgery. So let us all hope that following this interview, nothing horrible happens to me. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing as Alexander Jerry. Alex, it's been a long time since you and I shared these airwaves or whatever we're being live streamed on right now how have you been sir uh great funny running into you at michael's craft store just uh, were you also that. looking for a diy beaded frankenstein craft kit <laughs> wow that is an incredible coincidence no i was not it was that was really really weird because I saw your son, and I was like, wow, do all little kids look like Alex's son? That's I told crazy. him to go up and yell at you. Oh, my God. I thought you did. That was so funny because I was like, man, Laura, that looks just like Lee, but I don't see Alex around. He's with some other little kid. Then I looked up, and I saw you, so that was really weird. Why were you? So that's why you were in a strip mall. Let's want to make sure I uh, describe this the best. A suburban strip mall chain craft store. That's why you were there to look for a Halloween costume? I got a surplus on beads. <laughs> no, I was just doing craft with my kid. <laughs> Did you have fun with it afterwards? Uh, no. <laughs> I went over to Bill's Drive-In afterwards. Have you ever eaten there? Yeah, it's a seasonal place. And by that, I mean I have it once every season, and <laughs> I don't go back for another four months. I think the best review I've ever heard, had, uh, heard about Bill's Drive-In up at Asbury and Western, or Asbury, Western, and Howard, essentially, because Western changes to Asbury, uh, is uh, 
it is what it is. Did uh, Laura go in with you? Yes. I wonder if the editor and her would have a problem with the fact that there's a sign, I believe that's still there, that says onions, grilled onions, 0.05 cents, <laughs> which is a great deal. <laughs> I did not notice that. I also did notice that the ambiance of the place inside is much like you're standing in a stock room. Yeah, sweaty. It's a sweaty place to get your burgers. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, doesn't that uh, picnic table in the parking lot look so romantic as a place to eat? It's just, it really captures the whole scene. It is what it is. It is what it is. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And let's not rag on Bill's driving, because everybody in Evanston apparently loves it. This week's question from hell is, with gas prices and European currencies in freefall, where's your next vacation taking you? <laughs> The other thing that's funny about Bill's drive-in is I put it in the GPS, you know, to see how to get there. And it said, make a left at the IHOP. (laughs) The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, and the face mask. The coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. As well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support, and we need your support now more than ever because it turns out paying our staff a living wage is admirable but not so great for our bottom line. So please show your support for This Is Hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. And now a word from our sponsor. And as we are completely listener supported, our sponsor is you. Immediately following our interview yesterday with Andrea Vetter and Matthias Schmelzer, uh, co-authors of The Future Is Degrowth, we got an email from listener John Kay, who writes to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. John writes, Hi, Chuck. I just finished Matt Huber's book on climate change and class war and was happy you had him on. I wasn't impressed by the degrowth authors in comparison. Two academics and a goat, I think, talking about consumption. Huber is an academic but grounded in the need to engage labor. This reference to a goat, by the way, I got another Uh, email about this or another message via Twitter saying that in the middle of the interview with Andrea and Mateus, there was a sheep bleeding in the bleating in the background. I have no idea what I, I I didn't, I didn't notice, but now I have to go back and check. John continues. I didn't hear the degrowth authors discuss labor unions and production at all. I heard the word consumption a lot and I heard them frame it as rich countries versus poor ones. Huber thinks this is a mistake. It's owners of production all over the world screwing workers all over the world. That's how it needs to be framed. Bernie Sanders style. Workers need power over their workplaces, which, believe me, will quickly degrow the wallets of the super rich. Hope all things are good. Chicago is a day's drive from Duluth, Minnesota. So my wife and I might make it to office hours eventually. John. Wow, Duluth, I've always wanted to go there. Let's start with the most important point that John makes, and that is, this is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that is really a drink and think. John, it would be fantastic to meet you and uh, your wife as well, and it is flattering that you would even consider driving down from Duluth, which is 
all the way up to Lake Superior, and, and it's like, I don't know, nine-hour drive to get here, and that's if you don't make any stops. But if you're going to drive that far, you may want to wait until the This Is Hell holiday office party, which is happening in December, and we'll be giving people more details about that in the future. Uh, but the driving may not be that ideal, as the party will hopefully be in the winter, that is, if climate change allows for a winter, or you can wait until next year's anniversary and listener appreciation party in July. Don't get me wrong, it would be great to see you at office hours and everyone who is listening. Remember, this is how office hours happen downstairs from where I'm sitting right now in Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, every Wednesday evening, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until about 10 p.m. But just consider, John, if you're going to make that long of a drive, think about one of our annual parties instead, either the anniversary party or the This Is Hell Office Hours Holiday Office Party. As for degrowth, John and everyone else, check out the recent Al Jazeera article by Mateus and another co-author of The uh, Future of Degrowth, past guest Aaron Vensigen. Uh, the our article is titled Degrowth is Not Austerity. It is actually just the opposite. Adopting a degrowth model can ensure abundance for the majority, which offers their argument against a major criticism of degrowth, and that is it's nothing but repackaged austerity. But as for Andreas and Mateus, uh, Andrea and Mateus, uh, not mentioning labor, I blame myself, as they do write about it in their book, The Future of Degrowth. However, it is odd that it never came up during our conversation, but what did come up was convivial living and decisions on what is to be manufactured and what is not to be manufactured would be done more democratically under degrowth. That direct democratic decision-making is part of degrowth, which is something they did discuss and arguably implies labor organizing on a far greater scale under degrowth. Still, not mentioning labor and me not bringing it up either should make you skeptical of degrowth. But remember, like every revolution, degrowth does not have a concrete plan for how it will exactly happen. As with all uprisings, the goalposts and the way to get to those goalposts, that always changes. So their ideas on degrowth and how to get there are not set in stone and are still part of that ongoing conversation on the topic. None of us should be dismissing degrowth because we do not know exactly how that would happen just yet. That's why we have been engaging in the conversation here on the show, because it is an open and ongoing conversation. And whatever it leads to will hopefully be a direct challenge to our more market dominated society. You can email us at chuck at com with your constructive and destructive criticism as well as guest and topic ideas. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally on air during that interview. Alex will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Hadas Tier on inflation. Again, the question from hell is with gas prices and European currencies in free fall, where is your next vacation taking you with gas prices and European currencies in free fall? Where's your next vacation taking you? And we're getting a lot of really great responses. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. And it's not only that property has more rights than people under what is called neoliberalism. It's that it has far more power, which is the goal of neoliberalism, making workers vulnerable to job loss and security, precarity, and above all, lower wages and worse benefits. Also, the wealthiest can prosper which is exactly what inflation reduction policies like increasing interest rates is all about. We are very happy to have back on the show the last person we interviewed prior to me coming down with life-threatening condition that immediately required life-saving surgery. 
who is right now sick herself with COVID. And so we cannot thank her enough for being back on the show. show. Hadass Tier returns to This Is Hell. This time she will be on to discuss her new in these Times article, A Left Answer to Inflation. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Hadass. Good morning, Chuck. I'm glad you're, you're doing better than uh, last time we spoke. Yes, very much better than last time we spoke. How are you feeling right now? Um, I've been better. I, I, uh, am very slowly trying to recover from COVID. Um, could be worse, but hoping it gets better soon. Just, so, uh, just cause I know that other people are curious who have not had COVID. So how did it affect you? Were you ever at any point where you were just unable to do anything? Um, I would say the first day and day and a half were, were the roughest. Um, I am, vaccinated so i think you know that probably mitigated a lot of the worst of it but the the first day or so i was basically just in bed my whole body hurt too much to move i remember having this feeling like it would be so good if i could stretch right now but i can't move (laughs) Um, so it was it was pretty pretty bad that first day and then um you know it got kind of more regular sick after that but it's just been now it's been a week and it's kind of lingering well i hope only the best for you in your article you begin by writing in the 1940s with the experience of the great depression freshly seared into the collective american consciousness free market economists like milton friedman were generally regarded as right-wing cranks for believing that government interventions such as rent control a minimum wage even national parks only got in the way of the market's superior rationality. So, Hadass, what changed? Why did Milton Friedman go from being seen as a right-wing crank to being the accepted economic ideology of both major political parties? Well, I think a couple of things happened. I think that the, the main thing is that the state of the world economy was changing in the 1970s. And you know, the kind of more liberal economic philosophy that had dominated before, which I referenced in the article, uh, you know, called Keynesianism after uh, its leading theoretician, John Keynes, Um, you know, that those ideas were kind of easier to institute at a time when the economy was really flush. And in the post-war kind of economic period of the 40s and the 50s, you know, it was a lot easier to maintain full employment and keep the economy humming and, you know, all, all, all of that. Uh, and that began to wind down in the 1970s um, for a number of both international and domestic reasons. Uh, the economy was, was in, you know, in a more difficult situation and profitability was being squeezed and uh, a number of a number of factors led to really sky high inflation the, the kind of inflation that we're seeing right now does not uh, does not yet compare to what uh, was happening in the 1970s um, and in that context you know people like uh, Milton Friedman, and other, you know, right-wing economists were able to, uh, in Milton Friedman, I mean, in, in Milton Friedman's words, you know, you need ideas that are lying around so that when 
there's an opportunity uh, and things change, things that seemed politically impossible in the past now become politically inevitable. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what happened uh, in the 1970s. Of course, this was part of politically, you know, n- not just that there was economic conditions were changing, but politically there was a right-wing backlash against the civil rights movement and, uh, you know, all of the, the movements of the 1960s and a rising labor movement and, uh, and all of that. There was uh, a political right-wing backlash. Obviously, Ronald Reagan, um, you know, was the, uh, uh, the, the pinnacle of that backlash. Um, you know, Margaret Thatcher in, in Britain and so on. Uh, and, and that's where, you know, these political ideas and economic ideas kind of came together. And uh, the economic ideas, as I, as I argue in my article, kind of helped to provide a cover, you know, seemingly apolitical and technical uh, discussions of the economy in order to actually ram through what's a political agenda of making the working class pay for, uh, for economic crises. So why don't you think that was recognized as a political agenda? Why do you think, as you write, how uh, this economic policy gave cover for putting in that political project? Why do you think that political project wasn't recognized? Well, I think, you know, on some level it it was. I mean, Reaganism, you know, was pretty, uh, pretty aggressive in smashing, you know, w- the organized working class. Obviously, the most famous uh, act there was uh, firing uh, thousands of air traffic control um, workers for striking, uh, jailing their uh, union leaders, uh, destroying that that union. It was basically a, a you know, putting forward here here we come. Um, it's, it's time for the, the ruling class to go on an absolute offensive. So th- there was some extent to which that was certainly recognized, but I think that um, things like uh, economic discourse, things like the actions of the Federal Reserve, all of those things kind of claim a certain objectivity you know, this is just the way the economy, in quotes, the economy is just like a buzzword for something that seems to have, you know, a, a mind of its own. And we just have to feed the economy, you know, through these various uh, technical rules, um, you know, keeping unemployment from going too low, like all of these things where we just have to do it because that's just the economy. Um, and that continues to this day, you know, that there are these uh, all, of the, all of these technical arguments about what needs to happen because of, quote unquote, the economy without actually digging beneath the surface to say an economy for who, on, for an economy uh, towards whose benefit, on, at whose expense, uh, who's going to pay uh, the price for, uh, you know, for these lurches in the economy? Why does the economy go into lurches in the first place? All of these questions are inherently political, but there's this sort of like mask of, uh, you know, t- technical uh, arguments to, um, to to go over it. 
It always amazes me when people believe that the economy is somehow objective and outside of politics. That never really made any sense to me whatsoever. So why, yeah. why does Friedman's brand of economics, why does it dominate the current response to inflation? Has Friedman's brand of economics proven to be successful? And considering you know, it's stagnating wages, increasing inequality, centralization of wealth under neoliberalism, what will applying Friedman's economics to inflation mean this time? Has it proven to be successful? Is that why it's being used? And what will it mean this time? Well, it, it proved to be very successful for a certain stratum of the population, which you might guess is the very tip top of, uh, of, of our economy. Um, you know, that income stratification that you were talking about, that phenomenal, you know, record high uh, polariz- economic polarization between a tiny, you know, 0.1% of the population versus the bottom 90%, you know, that has benefited some people uh, quite well. And the experience of the 1970s was that these extremely um, aggressive actions on the part of the Federal Reserve, um, aggressively, aggressive enough to be dubbed the Volcker shock after Paul Volcker, who engineered this unprecedented hike in interest rates in order to induce a recession, you know, well, that caused incredible harm. Um, you know, I, I quote in my piece, um, an economic historian, Tim Barker, who's written really well about uh, a number of these issues. Uh, but he talked about what it meant for, you know, the industrial belt to turn into a rust belt. Um, you know, ma- the manufacturing uh, has never recovered in this country and therefore union rates have never recovered in this country. Um, you know, the sky high unemployment rates, um, you know, all, all of this, we're still, we're still paying the price for, for those actions. Uh, but for the ruling class, the, the lessons that they took from the 1970s was that, you know, mission accomplished. The inflation rates were eventually brought down to earth uh, and profitability was restored. Um, you know, again, that, that's a political question because restored for who? on whose backs, um, you know, it's, is a, is a key question, but, um, but that has framed, you know, not all of Milton Friedman's ideas and they, you know, even Paul Volcker himself was flexible in, um, you know, what, what he used of those ideas when, but the overarching kind of conservative, um, ideology, conservative economic ideology has been somewhat hegemonic for the last few decades, you know, that, um, you know, workers, wages, government spending, uh, all of these things are, are in the bad category. Um, And then the sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken corollary that austerity and unemployment are, are good. Um, you know, that, that frames the, um, all sorts of, you know, various ups and downs, but frames, uh, you know, the, the economic agenda that we've seen over the last 
few decades. And that economic agenda has bipartisan support, so we really can't vote it out of office either, which is a real drag. So you write that Milton Friedman said in 1982 that you need ideas that are lying around, as you were saying earlier, until a crisis arises when the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. For Friedman, that opportunity came in the form of stagflation recession, so called for combining high rates of inflation with stagnant economic growth in the 1970s. The spiraling inflationary crisis and its eventual resolution through drastic monetary tightening seemed to vindicate Friedman's ideas. Keynesianism uh, Keynesian economic policy was uh, uh, definitely, uh, uh, definitively replaced by a conservative economic orthodoxy. So to what extent then did Friedman's economics and his policy and ideology save us from stagflation? Well, so I think that part of the question is, and, th- and this is what I try to address later in the article, I think that for the left, you know, I mean, for any of us, the argument shouldn't be that we should ignore inflation. You know, inflation can have devastating effects on working people, um, especially since, you know, the poorer you are, the more of your income has to be spent on necessary goods. Um, so you don't have the luxury of just, you know, kind of waiting it out and, uh, waiting until prices go down and so on, because most of what you spend money are things that you absolutely have to spend money on. Um, So inflation can hurt quite badly. Uh, But the question is, what is the solution that's on offer? Is, you know, Friedman type of, uh, you know, Friedman type solution possible? Will it and inflation, well, eventually, yes, it did. Is that the only way to do it? You know, absolutely not. Uh, and, um, you know, Richard Nixon himself initially toyed with, had some, instituted some price controls. Um, you know, those things have, have actually been useful at different times in history, but they're, they're most, mostly palatable, 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 sorry, um, at, at a time, you know, during war economies, that's when they've they've been used most effectively. But that's again why it's a political question, you know, why it is that things are palatable during, uh, you know, during wartime, but not necessarily during uh, just times when working people are suffering. Um, so there are there are various solutions that that don't entail inducing a recession, uh, and I think that's. That's what we have to to look to and uh, and put forward. Do you think think that there's all this speculation within the media for several several months now, if not over a year, that we are headed towards recession? Is because there's an understanding that interest rates are going to be raised, and that will lead us to a recession. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that's part of it. I think there are other things as well that are kind of. Uh, putting pressures on the economy. And uh, I think a recession one way or the other uh, is, is very likely. I think not to, um, you know, beat a, a, a dead horse or whatever, but like anything, again, how that recession plays out on, on whose 
to, to whose benefit uh, is the, the million dollar question. Uh, and when the recession in the 1970s began, uh, at that time, it, you know, the workers' movements were actually very strong. Um, and at least initially, you know, wages were outpacing inflation or at least mitigating the effects of inflation. Um, you know, you could have rising prices, but also rising wages, which means that those prices don't take quite as big a bite out of your pocket. Um, but the answer to inflation that, you know, Friedman and Volcker and Reagan, um, that the right has is to shift the balance of, of forces uh, between labor and the capitalist class. And I think ultimately that was really the main um, goal and, and the main thing that they succeeded in doing in the 1970s was to say, you know, this is our opportunity to beat back the labor movement. Uh, and this is the opportunity to kind of re restart, um, you know, the the tables of who gets what, um, you know, what the what the share of the national income is, um, so that profitability is restored, um, and that the share of the national income that goes to working people is, uh, you know, returns to abysmal lows. We've had a lot of guests on the show saying that when, you know, at this point that we are in right now in this age of crises, whether it's an economic crisis or the pandemic or climate change, they've all said during these times of crisis, this is when you can take advantage of the situation and possibly introduce alternative economic uh, policies and strategies. So that's not the, the but the problem that I've always had with that assumption, not assumption, but that idea that during a crisis, you can have this opportunity for some sort of more leftist economic policy to take place. Isn't that also the time at which you can have a far right policy take place? Isn't crisis not necessarily only leading to leftist economic policies, but could lead to more, if you want, authoritarian economic policies like neoliberalism? Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, those are the, the, the that, that's the direction that things will naturally go in left to their own devices, because the world that we live in uh, is the world where the 1% does control, you know, um, not just the economy, but the political, uh, you know, the, the politics of this country. And, you know, most of, like you said, this is a bipartisan uh, understanding. Um, the, the solu this solution, this like right-wing solution to uh, inflation uh, and this kind of economic um, ideology is, is bipartisan. Um, so the, the mo most crises, um, are solved on the backs of working people, and that's not a coincidence. Um, at the same time, I think that there is some truth to that the, that other more hopeful argument, um, and I think both things can be true at the same time. Which is that you know, in periods of crisis, more is is thrown open, and things that previously seemed unheard of can be, you know, can be brought to the table. 
And I think that we have seen some glimpses of that uh, in the last couple of years uh, because of the pandemic. I mean, the kind of uh, government spending that we've seen, you know, we haven't seen since for, for decades and decades in this country. Um, you know, this has been uh, the kind of, even though they, all of these, uh, all of these benefits were temporary, unfortunately, they really, I think, open the door to what kind of role can the government play? Um, the, actually the government should be responsible for people not falling into poverty. Uh, that is something that the government can do. Actually, the government can, you know, produce the money when it, it when it needs to, um, you know, because it's always, the argument has always been, well, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for that? Well, it turns out the government can pay for these things. Um, so, th- so that's a good thing, you know, and, you know, some of these uh, pandemic era benefits that we, that we had, at least for a time, were tremendously successful. Um, and they proved that, that it is possible. Um, so I, I think that, I think that both of those things can be true, but I think the question for us always has to come back to, you know, subjectively what, what exists on the ground in terms of organization? Um, what, what is the labor movement doing right now? You know, what is the left doing right now in terms of supporting, uh, the unionization that's taking place in, you know, in places like Starbucks and Trader Joe's and, you know, all of, there's a whole wave of, uh, low income, uh, jobs where uh, unionization is is on the table. That's that's a huge deal. You know, what are we doing to support uh, that wave of uni- unionization? What are we doing also ideologically? And this is part of why uh, I wrote the article that I did. Um, and I think is why it's so important to have these discussions on the left. Like, what are we doing on the, you know, ideologically to back up the claim that actually, yes, workers deserve higher wages, that workers' wages are not to blame, um, that we need to, we need more, not less. Um, you know, we need to be able to, to fight along, uh, along that terrain as well, ideologically, to explain uh, that, that uh, you know, we have, we, we deserve more, not less. Do you think those interest rate hikes then are a response, a reaction to this new wave of unionization at Starbucks, at Trader Joe's, as you were mentioning? Even, I mean, it, that's a great thing that's happening. But when it comes to all of the jobs in the United States, that's only a, a small fraction. But do you think that this interest rate hike is about challenging that growing power within the unionization movement? Yeah, you know, I think I think that's that's certainly uh, part of it. I mean. It's, I, I wouldn't say, you know, it's not that it's a kind of conspiracy theory of sorts where the whole inflation thing is a ruse and they don't care about that. They just care about, you know, unionization and so on. I think it's both, you know, the, the, the capitalist class is not fond of rising inflation. Uh, they, they do want to stop that. Um, but at the same time, a, the way they're going about it, and B, the narrative that's being put forward uh, has particular uh, implications and motivations. You know, um, there is no doubt that the capitalist class is afraid of a tight labor market, um, which for our 
you know, on our end, you know, the tight, a tight labor market where unemployment is pretty low and people are not afraid of losing their jobs um, as much as, as they have been in the past. That's one of the most positive objective conditions that has come out of, um, you know, this whole pandemic era over the last couple of years. Um, that has helped to lead the way to these unionization drives. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I quote this Bank of America memo um, that the uh, Intercept had had unearthed um, where they're, you know, when they're talking amongst themselves, they're, they're more uh, candid, uh, but they're very nervous about low unemployment and a tight labor market. Um, you know, that's something that they're hoping to get back to normal, get back in line, um, because the, the, the fact is, is that capitalism, you know, a smoothly functioning capitalism depends on unemployment. Uh, it, de- it depends on a, a, a healthy enough level of unemployment from their perspective, I mean healthy, that workers are adequately scared of losing their job um, and worried that they will be easily replaced because unemployment is high. Uh, and that really makes it hard to make demands on the job for higher wages. And it makes it really hard to uh, organize and unionize. Um, and so, you know, that, that is absolutely something that they, that the capitalist class is interested in, in getting into line. Um, you know, part of what I, I discussed in, in the article is that they're willing to let that go to a point so long as workers aren't demanding too high wages, you know, if unemployment for a while, unemployment has gotten pretty low uh, before, um, you know, even before the pandemic hit, there was relatively low unemployment rate. uh, And the the Federal Reserve was not tightening um, the economy by by raising interest rates, they were like, okay, well, let's see how this goes. It looks like Unemployment is low, but that hasn't exerted, you know, any kind of inflationary pressures on the economy. And, and the reason for that, I think, and a lot of them spoke about this quite openly, is that the labor movement is so weak that even in the case of low unemployment, the, the labor movement was still not making demands for higher wages. Uh, in, you know, in, in most circumstances, you would think when unemployment is low and there's a tight labor market, that would lead to demands for higher wages, and that wasn't happening. And I think that you know, for the Federal Reserve and for the, the capitalist class as a whole, they, you know, they were watching this and saying, okay, well, it looks like, at least for now, um, you know, we can have the best of both worlds because uh, wages are, are continuing to be historically you know, abysmally low. Um, so we don't have to, to worry about this just yet. And you write that, it, and just to uh, repeat something you said earlier, in what came to be known as the Volcker shock, just so people you know, know, then Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker, Volcker engineered an unprecedented hike in interest rates. Higher rates slowed investment and shuttered many businesses, which lowered consumer demand and triggered massive unemployment. And that you add that manufacturing job, jobs had been a key source of unionization and union density declined precipitously throughout the 1980s, falling from 23% to 16% 
5% by the decade's end, and it has been falling ever since. Why after the Volcker shock? Why 40 years later now? Why are we still seeing union membership declining? How much are we still feeling the after effects of the Volcker shock? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a key question. I mean, I think part of part of the answer is that in you know what what largely replaced uh, good union jobs in manufacturing uh, as the economy started to recover, um, what has largely replaced them has been uh, low wage ununionized uh, jobs. And that's, you know, that's very much the economy that, um, that we've, we've been living through and that the, and that the U S capitalist class has grown to love, um, you know, a low wage uh, workforce. Um, And so, so I think that that's, that's part of, of the picture is that those, those manufacturing jobs never, never returned. Uh, and the low-wage uh, jobs that replaced them, um, you know, didn't see those same levels of unionization, obviously. And that is what's beginning to shift. I don't want to overstate it, but we see the beginnings of it, uh, which is hugely important. Um, but I, th- I think that the, the other r- related piece is that the the economic backdrop since the 1970s has remained the same. This is the, this is the neoliberal era um, where, you know, the Volcker shock helped to restart the economy along the lines that they, they wanted it. Um, And they've even, you know, once inflation subsided, they've kept, those policies, not necessarily, you know, high interest rates that kind of went out the door when it was no, no longer necessary, but the politics of austerity, of, um, you know, beating back uh, the unions, the labor movement of, uh, you know, just aggressive uh, policies, uh, privatization, the financialization of everything, deregulation of, uh, of, 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 you know, of everything, of finance, but also of, um, you know, corporate, uh, you know, of any kind of uh, policies on corporations. Um, all of these things have been the hallmarks of the last few decades and have maintained just absolutely abysmal levels of uh, economic polarization. And And I think, sorry, and I would just add one thing too, which is that a big part of that is that it's kept working people afraid. Um, And that's a really important aspect of the, the strength or weakness of the labor movement is that when you have people afraid, um, when they're living paycheck to paycheck, um, when they're afraid of losing their job, um, that they'll be replaced easily. Um, all of that keeps people from, um, you know, from organizing and for demanding uh, more than uh, more than the, the 
the breadcrumbs that we've been uh, thrown. We are speaking with Hadas here. She is returning to This Is Hell to talk about her latest article at In These Times, a left answer to inflation. You can go to our website, thisishell.com, and search on her last name, Tier T-H-I-E-R, to hear our past two interviews with her, one on her book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, and another on how cryptocurrency will not liberate us. You can follow Hadas on Twitter, at Hadas Tier. So you point out that real wages adjusted for inflation are actually down. Yet in the media, we keep hearing that what is driving inflation is wages, the increase in wages. And you write that inflation has stubbornly stuck around, propelled by a number of factors. Thin inventories motivated by just-in-time production methods made it difficult to meet growing demand. Russia's invasion of Ukraine contributed to high oil prices, which impacted almost every part of the economy. Pandemic-era benefits modestly fueled demand by putting more money in circulation, and company CEOs took advantage of the increased demand and engaged in price gouging, raising prices much higher than their supply cost. Why is just-in-time production bad when it comes to fulfilling demand? And do you think this weakness of just-in-time production will lead to an abandonment of the idea and practice? Right. Well, just-in-time production is one of those things that uh, came with the last few decades of the neoliberal uh, economic order. Um, It has been tremendously profitable to the capitalist class um, to, you know, not have extra storage costs, not produce uh, more than what will be necessary, you know, in the coming, uh, what they determine the next, you know, few weeks or or possibly months, depending on on which industry you're talking about. Um, And, you know, there's, there's an, an element to which just increasing, um, you know, technology and communication and so on has 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 facilitated that, um, so that they could they could get away with it in a way that they wouldn't have uh, in the past. Um, that said, yes, it's um, it's it makes it very difficult to ramp up production quickly when there are, uh, you know. When, there, when there's not enough supply to meet growing demand. Um, you know, and it's trying to trying to think how to explain this exactly. It's it's not different than how the free market works in general. It's just a more extreme version of it. Um, where it's capitalists will only sell things when they are, when it's profitable to do so. And when it's not profitable to do so, they would rather, you know, just throw out their inventory altogether. I mean, literally, you know, that, that obviously happens where, you know, grain is dumped into the ocean. Um, There was uh, one kind of infamous case that happened during the pandemic where, um, Abbott Technologies, which is, you know, one of the, the, the companies that produces um, COVID tests, the at-home COVID tests, where they threw out literally millions of tests because at that moment, there wasn't a high need for them. And the storage costs are 
you know, they decided were too high. Um, and obviously a sane thing to do if we lived in a sane society, when you have, you know, a, a, too much inventory of something to keep in your, in your storage, um, is that you would give them out for free rather than throw them out or at least sell them at cost or pass them off to any number of governments around the world that were actually, you know, literally begging for, for tests at that time. Well, they just threw out literally millions of tests instead. And then a month or two later, lo and behold, there's another wave of COVID and suddenly there's huge demand for these tests and uh, no supply. And then you have, you know, the flip side of it, which is price gouging, where now people probably remember there was a time, um, I think it was last summer, where there were no tests to be found. And when you found them, they would, you know, cost like $100 or whatever. Well, that's just how the market works, you know, is you, you, you charge whatever you get away with. Um, and if the price is too low, well, you might as well get rid of the inventory altogether. So um, all that to say, you know, just in time has been one profitable way that um, capitalists have found to respond to, to, to quickly respond to the needs of the market when, uh, when they're able, uh, but at in extreme times when uh, there is chokeholds on supply and so on, uh, it just exacerbates the problems that we have so that they, we, we don't have the supplies that we need. We can't easily ramp them up. Um, and that just allows for, uh, for higher prices and price gouging. And you would think that that's just going to continue in this time of crisis, whether it's climate change or the pandemic or what's happening with wars around the world, that that's just going to continue happening. And you point out that the government could play a greater role in untangling supply chain chokeholds. How could the government untangle the supply chain chokeholds? Because that would seem to have a shared interest of the government, the private sector, and consumers. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the main lesson in all of this is that the government can and should play uh, a much more aggressive and interventionist role in the economy, uh, and that all of these types of um, solutions, and I'll, I'll say a couple, are part of, uh, more broadly, a way that we could have a more democratic economy, a more... Um, democratically accountable uh, economy in terms of the role of the state um, and, uh, you know, as opposed to just letting the Federal Reserve, which is an unelected, unaccountable, thoroughly, you know, not transparent um, body uh, be charged with, well, with all of these economic questions. Actually, the role of the federal government um, should be should be a lot more proactive. Um, you know, at the top of the list is you know something like the Defense Production Act, um, which gives the government the right in 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 periods of crises um, to to play a more interventionist role. Um, you know, they could support investment in the production of specific goods. You know, things that are playing an outsized role in supply chain chokeholds, um, whether that's um, inputs for housing construction or 
uh, semiconductors, which um, played a really debilitating role in the production of uh, the lack of semiconductors played a really debilitating role in uh, production of, of cars and spiked up uh, both new and used car prices. Um, investing in green energy production, um, all, all of these things, um, the, the government could actually, um, you know, put, put money and investment uh, towards those things, uh, create incentives um, for companies to produce the things that need to be produced, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the federal government also has already, you know, a big, um, you know, a big role within certain industries like healthcare and education. Those are some of the key places where, uh, rising prices have, uh, had the most direct uh, and terrible consequences for working people. So for instance, um, Medicare, allowing Medicare to negotiate prices for prescription drugs, um, not only lowers the cost dramatically for Medicare, for people who are on Medicare, but has been shown, um, you know, that the private prices uh, would, would go down as well because they tend to follow Medicare's uh, prices. Um, you know, federal funding uh, for higher education accounts for about 14% of college revenue. You know, imagine if the government tied its support of higher education to, to various institutions um, to demands for tui uh, caps on tuition. The federal government could say, you're not receiving, you know, X amount of money from us unless you know, you sign on a dotted line that you're not going to raise tuition uh, this year or the next 10 years or what have you. Um, the government could play uh, a much bigger role in, in those arenas where it's already, you know, has a significant role, but it, it doesn't make, it doesn't uh, attach any requirements um, to, to its, uh, you know, to, to its um, uh, paying of, uh, you know, money for education, uh, for institutions, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, there, there's any number of other examples, but uh, certainly targeted price controls, um, caps on, on, on fuel, on gas prices, uh, all of these things, um, you know, could, could be the role of a much more interventionist federal government. So if price controls work, then why do you think, what, in your opinion, why do you think the uh, Bush, or Bush Biden administration is not engaging in price controls? Are price controls just so incredibly politically unpopular or vulnerable from right-wing attacks of claiming that they are either socialism or communism that the Biden administration or any Democrat would be willing to impose price controls? Yeah, I mean, I think it would certainly be a, a political risk for for all those reasons. Um, you know, there are some there are some things that I think would be kind of lower hanging fruit for the government to start with, um, but I think price controls are ultimately really important and and necessary. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, they have been pal palatable, um, you know, during war economy, um, I think not, you know, in a period 
um, where we're not in the midst of a war, it would require really um, fighting for them politically. Obviously, that's not something that the Biden administration is known to do. Um, but I think that's part of the importance of the role of the left in like bringing, bringing these ideas forward and fighting for these ideas. Um, you know, certain things that seemed completely off the table a few years ago are now on the table. And it's largely because of the role of the left, you know, think about um, forgiving student loans. Um, obviously that hasn't gone as far as we would like to yet, but it's made a huge, it's a huge, huge step forward um, that um, student loans, you know, up to a certain point have been forgiven. Uh, that was considered unheard of really um, just a few years ago. And, and it's taken a lot of organizing to take, to, to get to the point where we have. Um, so I think, you know, the question of, of price controls um, certainly wouldn't come out of, you know, out of thin air. Uh, it would require really fighting for those kind of policies. And, and I think for the left, what's important in that narrative, um, what we need, what we need to be able to emphasize is that when we talk about inflation, you know, all inflation means, right, is a rise in prices ac across the economy. So who raises those prices? It's something that's like a very basic point and basic question that doesn't get raised in the mainstream media. Who's responsible for raising those prices? It's not workers, you know, no matter how high our wages are, which they're not, um, workers don't determine the, the, the price of things. The bosses determine the price of things. That's, that's their, you know, that's their job. That's not our job. Um, and so the idea that a rising cost of production necessarily has to lead to a rise in prices just assumes that the rate of profit for companies needs to remain as high as it is. That's why they're raising prices. They see, you know, added costs to production and they are going to pass off those added costs to consumers. But the reason that they're doing so is because they want to keep their rate of profit as it was, which is, you know, absurdly, grotesquely high. And so capping prices is just another way of saying really capping profits um, and to say, well, instead of workers having to pay the price for um, added costs of production, companies and corporate profits should pay the price for it. Um, and that's, that's a discussion that we need to, to have and to shift. You write that the American ruling class has, since the implementation of uh, Friedman's economic policies, uh, has had uh, one ever higher uh, labor productivity and profit rates. Workers keep working harder for less. Friedman's ideas provided a seemingly technical and apolitical cover for the restoration of capitalist profitability at the expense of the working class. But Hadass, if workers keep working harder for less... How sustainable are Friedman economic policies? Is there a breaking point at which workers will no longer continue working harder and harder for less and less? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big part of what we're seeing 
right now with some of these unionization waves that are going on uh, at low wage uh, jobs. And I think in particular, the pandemic heightened this very in this exact tension and, and contradiction that you're talking about. Um, because, you know, here we were told that essential workers were necessary to keeping the economy going uh, when, you know, this pandemic was just tearing through communities when, um, you know, death rates were, uh, were sky, you know, skyrocketing in particular among, um, among uh, working people, people of color, poor people, essentially, you know, the people that had to go to work um, were, had to pay the price um, in many cases with their lives. So I think that that tension hit a complete breaking point where people were first told they were essential to keeping, you know, the economy going during this deadly pandemic. Uh, and then were basically, you know, spit out the other side and, um, you know, all the, when the pandemic era benefits came to a close, um, you know, when, uh, all, all, all of these things, um, you know, we were just told to like, get back to, to life as normal, um, even when things were, were far from normal. So I, I think that there, there certainly is a, a bottom. Um, but again, the question is always comes down to subjective, the subjective element of how well organized are we? Um, how, how much can, what can we do? You know, those of us, there are, there are people that are organizing right now and there are those of us that are not in those workplaces, but what can, what can we do to support uh, those, those unionization drives? Um, Starbucks workers are now uh, finally headed into uh, negotiations over contracts with, with, with Starbucks. Um, you know, what can we do to build solidarity uh, and support those struggles? I have a question from hell for you, but before I ask you the question from hell, I, I, there's that front page headline in today's New York Times, and it's all about the high cost of President Biden's student loan initiative, which they mark at $400 billion. In that article, there's no discussion of the high cost of, of continuing student debt. What does that tell you about the way in which the economy is reported in liberal media outlets like the New York Times? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's high cost to who? And and that's, again, you know, that goes back to the, the million dollar question. Of course, this has been a, an incredibly high cost, a debilitating cost for millions upon millions of people who are basically indentured for decades of their lives after going to school. Um, you know, people with tens of thousands, sometimes upwards of $100,000 worth of debt that you just carry for, uh, you know, decades later, you went to school in your 20s, now you're 50, and you're still um, trying to pay it off. Um, this has been a, an absolutely grotesque um, uh, uh, cost to, to millions of people. Um, and, and that kind of gets me back to this point about why it's so important for the left to be able to talk about economics. Because the narrative is so skewed, and you know the 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 
big picture that kind of frames the discussion is always um, is always tilted in the wrong direction. You know, so when we're talking about um, build back better, you know, the the, the sort of uh, the st- stimulus uh, in, um, um, plan that that wasn't. Um, gets turned into an inflation reduction act or student loans, um, you know, comes, starts when when we talk about student loans or when they talk about student loans, I should say, um, the talking heads respond with, you know, what will this do to inflation? All of this is a very convenient narrative to maintain the status quo. and, And it's absolutely one that we should push back on. One last question for you, Hadass. We've been speaking with Hadass Tier, who has returned to This Is Hell to discuss her new In These Times article, A Left Answer to Inflation, which I strongly suggest that you read. Also check out her book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, an Introduction to Marxist Economics. And check out both of our, both of our interviews with Hadass that we've done in the past, one back in November of 2020 on A People's Guide to Capitalism, and one earlier this year on uh, how cryptocurrency will not liberate us by searching on her last name, Tier, T-H-I-E-R, this is hell.com, and follow Hadass on Twitter at Hadas Tier. One last question for you, Hadas, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You <laughs> write in the long term, recognizing that capitalism is an inherently unstable system that resolves its crises on the backs of working people. A left economic agenda needs to frame a vision for a different kind of economy, one based on human need rather than corporate profit. In doing so, Hadas, what would the effect be on capitalism? Can capitalism survive as an economy based on human need and not on corporate profit? Well, the answer, I think, um, I won't hate to say and your audience won't hate to hear, <laughs> um, I think is a good answer, which is that capitalism cannot, cannot survive um, as a system based on human need. Um, and I say that um, you know, that, that it's not a hateful answer in the sense that I think, uh, it's actually quite hopeful to put in our minds that we could have a vision of a different kind of society and a different kind of economy that we can, and we should, you know, absolutely tinker with the current system because, you know, it's not going to disappear without a fight or quickly uh, in any stretch uh, of the imagination. And so we have to fight for specific reforms, um, you know, a number of which we've talked about uh, in this show and and, uh, some that are outlined in my article and in in other places. Um, Those are absolutely critical reforms Uh, But we have to also be clear that every reform that benefits working people is to the detriment of corporate profits. And corporate profits are what make the system tick. And so we have to be prepared to not just keep the system going, you know, on life support for as long as possible, but we have to be prepared to fight for a different kind of economy, one that is democratically controlled rather than controlled by the 1%. That's not, you know, that's not an easy solution. Um, And, you know, I'd be 
lying or arrogant or both. <laughs> if I told you, I have a simple solution for how it is that we get there. Um, but I think that that's the vision we have to keep in our minds as we, you know, have these uh, fights and, um, you know, that we, we, we want more, we want more of the breadcrumbs and we want more substantial pieces of bread, not just the crumbs, but then we also have to be um, ready to engage in, you know, what kind of a system uh, do we do we need in the long term uh, when we're, we're not having these uh, fights day in and day out just to be able to uh, get the basics of what we need. Hadas, I cannot thank you enough for being back on the show, and I cannot believe that you actually made it through an hour-long interview. <laughs> and not Me want, neither. Not wanting to tag out. I was certain that you were going to. I hope you get better, Hadas. Thank you so much for all the support. Thank you for the kind words that you sent me while I was ill. I truly appreciate it, and I can only hope the best for you. I look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much, Chuck. My pleasure as well. All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. If what you just heard from Hadass here on a left response to inflation, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or even realized that, yes, this really is hell, please show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support and by the way you'll want to tune into this week's patreon podcast because on patreon this week i will be revealing an unauthorized autobiography of me as my birthday approaches next week. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, with gas prices and European currencies in freefall, where's your next vacation taking you? Where's your next vacation taking you? It would just seem like you'd go to Europe, right? <laughs> it just makes sense, right? Uh, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Okay, Peter K says, to hell in a handbasket with Ginny <laughs> Thomas property tag. <laughs> All right. Pete P says... Seriously? Sounds like that guy needs to go on a vacation. <laughs> uh, Wojek R says, a town without pity. That's Calumet City. George B said, city of slabs in the crispy, clean toaster air of southeastern California. <laughs> Look up Slab City, everyone. It's a pretty interesting ride. No, really? Mike M says, I'm going to the cutest little B&B &B in Kentucky. They have an artisanal shake and bake meth lab that is supposedly makes the best glass in five counties. Wow. You know... I've never done meth, but it's pretty cool they call it glass. That's it a, is that's really a top cool. tier drug name. The first time I heard it referred to as glass, I was like, oh, I want to know what's glass. And they told me it was crystal meth. I was like, oh, damn it. David R. says, 2251 West Devon Ave. <laughs> uh, Braden S. says, the living room, maybe the shed. Ariana R. says, to Ian's eye, soon the only safe spot in the state of Florida. Don't you have a shed that you travel to on a regular basis? Yeah. Also? Don't ask why it smells bad after <laughs> the end of the day. Uh, Pete V. says, 2251 West Devon. <laughs> Didn't add the Ave. So uh, I think he's been one up there. Kelly H. says, out to sea without a boat. Joanne C. says, to the alley to take out the trash, but taking the scenic, route, taking the scenic view around the block. And finally, Mark A. says... 
Fascist Italy or bust? <laughs> Jesus, this is criminy. So uh, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Hal. We'll have the rest of them on tomorrow's show, and we'll be announcing this week's winner. If you want to leave your response, do it at our Facebook page, tweet it at us, or just email chuck at thisishell.com, and we'll read your answers on air. It's time for Nasty Gnarly. Nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. And if you didn't like Hadass using the phrase, beat a dead horse, then you'll hate the first Rotten History today. On September 26th, 1963, 59 years ago this week, a shopping center in in Lansing, Michigan, hosted a traveling carnival featuring a 12-year-old Asian elephant named Little Raji. Captured wild in India in 1954 and originally broken, a disturbing term, and trained by the Ringling Brothers Circus, Little Raji had been sold in 1958 to a Kentucky amusement park, where I'm certain you could get glass, then sold again in 1961 to a traveling carnival that carted her around the country and made her dance and do tricks for spectators in county fairs and supermarket parking lots. Supermarket parking lots. Good gourd. A broken elephant sold from an amusement park to a traveling carnival and forced to do tricks in supermarket parking lots. If you are someone who adamantly believes in animal rights, this is definitely rotten history. Elephants are highly intelligent, naturally social with their own kind, and poorly suited to such a life. Exactly what species of mammal you would have to be for you to be suited for this kind of life is uncertain. So perhaps it was stress and loneliness that at last provoked little Raji to rebel, break her chain, and go off on what local news media would later call a rampage through the streets of Lansing, Michigan, which is likely what I would do if I was little Raji. Makes sense. First, she charged into a nearby discount department store where she broke windows, pounded through the aisles, toppled displays, and did massive damage. And I'm quickly, quickly becoming a huge little Raji fan. After half an hour, the carnival workers managed to calm her down, but then a burglar alarm rang, scaring little Raji and sending her charging off again through the neighborhood streets after she passed an ongoing high school junior varsity football game, which is likely the best thing that ever happened at a high school junior varsity football game. Little Raji was chased for two miles by hundreds of ignorant youths who yelled and threw objects at her, ignoring the pleas of her trainer who begged them to stop. But kids are cruel because, you know, their parents taught them to be cruel, so there's that. Finally, after the frightened 3,000-pound elephant smashed a car and injured an elderly man, a Lansing police officer came forward and brought her down with several dozen shots from a deer rifle. Little Raji lay dead in the street, and a few witnesses on the scene started yelling murderers, but hundreds of teenage onlookers laughed and jeered at the trainer as he cried over the elephant's corpse. A reporter quoted him as saying, Damn these people. They wouldn't leave her alone. And if that wasn't rotten history already, get this. Rinaldo Magaldi, who does the research and writing for This Is Hell, except for all the stupid tidbits I throw in, he adds, My dad and my uncle actually knew the police sergeant who shot little Raji dead, and I once met him. He didn't want to do it at all, but he felt he had no choice. Years later, my uncle told me that the officer was pretty broken up after it afterward. about it afterward. The incident briefly made national news and was featured in Life magazine. And now when I think back on it, there was a lot of 
death in Life magazine. Also in Rotten History, on September 30th, 1919, 103 years ago this week, about 100 African-American sharecroppers met at a church near the small town of Elaine, Arkansas, to discuss their unfair treatment by white landowners. They had called a meeting of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union, which you should look up, Progressive Farmers and Household Union, because they were fed up with the high percentages demanded by the landowners and the lack of proper accounting for what they supposedly owed. Having already hired a white lawyer, good move, to plead their case in court, the sharecroppers were well aware that their meeting might provoke the white landowners to violence, so some had brought guns in case of trouble. So white landowners were ripping black sharecroppers off, and those same sharecroppers meeting to discuss being ripped off was likely going to lead to deadly violence. Got it. Sure enough, a group of white men showed up and fired shots into the church as is their want. When a black sharecropper fired back in self-defense, his bullet killed a white man. News of the incident spread fast across the county. The gunshot was inflated into a rumor that black farmers were planning an armed communist insurrection. And who knew that Tucker Carlson's rhetoric dates back to 1919? He just wants to make America great again by embracing racist fear-mongering and anti communist rhetoric. The governor of Arkansas got permission to send in 500 federal troops to round up the sharecroppers, and the result was one of the most deadly race-related massacres in U.S. history. Over the next several days, soldiers and white vigilantes, many of them drunk, slaughtered hundreds of African-American men, women, and children, few of whom had anything to do with the sharecroppers meeting. Hundreds more were locked up, tortured, or terrorized, but five white people also died, so within weeks, 132 black residents were charged with Having instigated or perpetrated the violence, 12 received death sentences, though lawyers from the NAACP later got those reversed on appeal. Thank God. 65 other defendants entered plea bargains for jail sentences for up to 21 years. Meanwhile, no whites were prosecuted. If you want to learn more about this massacre, check out our recent interview with Calvin Graham and Dre Cummings. Calvin, I met actually at the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party. He drove up all the way from Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, But check out our conversation with Calvin and Dre Cummings on the race massacre in both Elaine, Arkansas and Tulsa, Oklahoma. Just search on Graham or Cummings at thisishell.com. But keep in mind, in 2021, the media shortly after the police murder of George Floyd memorialized the Tulsa massacre having been committed 100 years earlier. In 2019, there wasn't a word about what happened in Elaine, Arkansas, which leads me to wonder, was it because of how horrific the violence was in Elaine and how that might depict white racism in the early 20th century? Or did it take George Floyd's murder for the media to finally try and reckon with the deadly racist past of the United States? Who knows? But what I do know is that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, who is coming up as our next guest here on This is Hell? Uh, tomorrow, that's Wednesday. Is that Wednesday? Tomorrow's Wednesday? Yes. Could be. Carrie Leiderson has a new article on Evanston's racism, colon. Journalist Carrie Leiderson is an author and assistant professor of journalism at Northwestern University. Oh, I didn't know that. Good for her. Yeah. She'll be on to discuss her article at The New Republic, Can Liberal Evanston, Illinois, Atone for Its Racist Past? As a, resi- Republic. As, a, as a resident of uh, Evanston, Illinois, can you answer? that question for yeah, I'll us. talk to you about that at the bar tomorrow. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so drop by for office hours. And of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff offers the super true uh, tale of the capitalist who gave birth to a blue whale. 
I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show live streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. It was a pleasure doing a show again with you, sir. And get well soon to Lindsay Gorey. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.